Good to be back with you guys. Let's look at God's word now. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. This is God's word. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we are thankful for your word to us that we are not left to figure things out on our own, but you have revealed yourself to us. You have given us most clearly your son, and you have left with us your word and your spirit to guide us. So would you take now your word by the power of your spirit and open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wonderful things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, if I were to be asked what is the mission of the church, and I would say this of the church and the church, big T-H-E, E and little T-H-E, globally or locally, the mission of the church is to make disciples, quite simply. Uh, I would make that argument based on the great commission that Jesus gave before he ascended into heaven, that we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We might describe that making disciples in different ways. Uh, We might uh, focus on different areas of what that discipleship looks like, but that is a succinct way of describing what it is that is our mission that has been given to us. A lot of times people think of discipleship as instruction. Um, They think of it as teaching, but discipleship encompasses the whole range Uh, It encompasses evangelism. A disciple, in order to become a disciple, has to be evangelized. Uh, And discipleship isn't isn't something that you do in a a six-week class. Um, Discipleship is life. (laughs) It's what begins for us when we come in faith to Christ and what continues until we are taken home to be with him. So it includes evangelism. It includes instruction. It includes what we're doing now in corporate worship. This is a part of our discipleship. Let me say this. True discipleship does not happen outside the local church. It doesn't. I'm not saying that you can't be discipled without being in the physical building of the church. Understand this. What I'm saying is those people who say, I don't need to be a part of a church. I love Jesus. I worship him on the golf course on Sunday morning. That's not discipleship. That's the point I'm trying to make, okay? We're called to gather together, not forsake the gathering together. We're called to be a part, uh, not just of the, the broader body of Christ, but this, for us here, this today, this is us, this local body. And there are many other local bodies all around the world that are gathering and meeting. So it happens in corporate worship. It happens through church discipline. It happens through benevolence. It happens through counsel and on and on and on. All of these things would be encompassed in our understanding of discipleship. And so this is not only our mission and our task as believers of Christ's church, 
We who are trusting Christ Jesus, though, are also being discipled. So it is both what we are doing and what is being done to us at the same time, and it should be all the time. None of us are exempt from either component, making disciples, being discipled. All of us ought to be learning. All of us ought to be being corrected. All of us ought to be being helped and so on. And none of us is exempt from making disciples, although based on the gifts that the Spirit has given us, it's going to look different in each of our lives. I'm not going to do, none of us can do it all. That's again why we need the local church. We need all of the gifts because the elements of discipleship are uh, diverse among us in the gifts that the Spirit has given to us. So discipleship is both what we are being tasked with and what is occurring in our lives, what we are both making disciples or should be making disciples and both being discipled. And I don't know that we talk about this enough today in, 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 mo- in the modern evangelical world because, again, I think we, we try and relegate discipleship to something that maybe uh, so certain people do or maybe something that we did a long time ago if we've walked with the Lord for a while. So there's two concerns that I have regarding discipleship that I just want to address up front that we might be careful not to fall into these traps. One is that some people believe that the task of discipleship belongs to other people. It's the professionals, pastors or officers of the church or missionaries or other people in uh, vocational ministry. Those are the ones that do the discipleship, not me. What do I have to offer? What can I do? I'm not a teacher or whatever. As I mentioned, though, the entire mission of the church, if it's discipleship, it encompasses all that the church is called to do. So discipleship can include other things besides teaching, should include other things besides teaching. The task is not relegated to just a few Christians. It is given to all of us. Jesus didn't put an asterisk at Matthew 28, 18 little footnote at the bottom saying only these people have to follow this. He gave the great commission for all of us. It's been a task given to all of us. So that's the first concern. Another concern is that some Christians act and may even believe that they were once discipled, they have been discipled, and now they're done. They don't need any more discipling. They've got it all figured out. They know what to do. Thank you. Don't need your input. Don't need your correction. Don't need your insight or wisdom or help along the journey. And I think Most of you know both of these notions are false. And we need to be wary of falling into either uh, trap, uh, either, either one of these. Discipleship, the task given is for all of us, and being discipled is something we are all to be doing. We're all to be growing in the grace of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until we die, until the Lord returns. So let me say this succinctly, that when Jesus said, follow me, what did that involve in terms of discipleship? It involves continued growth, ongoing faith, repentance. Those two things go together. And it also involves a great cost. Now, we could probably expand that and we could add other things into it to make it clearer, but I want to keep it as succinct as possible. And I want to focus today primarily because of what we see in this text on the cost. The cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus And I want to say at the outset that this cost is not meritorious, doesn't earn our salvation. That's not what's going on here. I think we are all assured or should be, I want you to be today, assured that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
and that Christ's work on our behalf is all sufficient. We don't, we're not adding to that. It wasn't deficient in any way. It didn't need our help with that. He has accomplished our salvation. Any cost that comes to us is not meritorious in that sense. Yet there is a cost. There is a cost to following Christ. A very real cost that you who have chosen to follow Christ know and have felt. And the cost, while not earning our salvation, would include suffering with Christ, would include letting go of earthly goods and pleasures, could include persecution for following him, and suffering through various trials and temptations. All of these things could be included. We could probably add some more. Unlike the promises of the world and the messages of the world, you only live once, get all you can, seek all the pleasures, seek all the goods, gather, 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 all of these physical temporal things that are out there to be gathered. You know, there's a, we're inundated constantly. We don't even know it anymore. We don't realize it anymore that we're constantly being told, oh, wait, there's just one more thing. Oh, and this other thing needs to be upgraded. You know, it's just constant, the message that's, that's before us. That's what the world tells us. But Jesus calls us to see that this life is not all that there is. If you get focused on this life, you'll get, you'll get sucked into that trap that the world sets, that the world calls us to. You know, we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. A lot of times the, the, the tactics of the world may be the most obvious the tactics of Satan may be a little more tricky because it's a spiritual element. We're not really, we don't see with our physical eyes. Scripture informs us of what Satan is up to. But I think we often neglect, we often neglect the battle with self. You know, we're often our own worst enemy. We often set ourselves up, the, the, uh, set ourselves up for, for, for disaster um, uh, because of our own hearts just wanting stuff, wanting to do stuff, wanting to be happy, knowing it's wrong, doing it anyway. Jesus calls us to see that this life is not all that there is. Don't become fixated with this life. This life is temporary, but there is a life that is coming that is eternal. This world is passing away, but there is a new world that's coming that will not pass away. These bodies, we all know, they're falling apart, right? We're on the downhill slide. But there is a body that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth that will not suffer and will not decay. So the cost of discipleship is real, yet mysteriously is part of God's grace to us who are trusting in Jesus. If the world is full of sin, and it is, then we are helpless in and of ourselves to alleviate the problem. And if as sinners we will devour and destroy one another except by God's grace, and we would, then any and all preservation in this life is his grace. And if he is redeeming us completely from the fall and making all things new, and he is, then any and all suffering we encounter will be rectified somehow, some way. Folks, this is our hope. And I don't have quick, easy little answers on this to make sense of why we suffer the way that we do and when we do and how we do. But our hope is that Jesus is making all things new. And what awaits us is greater 
and will be more glorious and will out, uh, uh, outshine anything that we have to endure in this life. We may not be able to see it. We may not be able to understand it. But the cost of discipleship, while very real, we've all felt it, is still covered by the grace of Christ. So as we come to this passage today, I want us to see that there is a very real cost, and yet at the same time that Jesus came humbly to suffer so that he might be exalted to accomplish our great salvation and make us glad followers of him. How can I say glad? It is gladness that is rooted in Christ alone, not in our circumstances. If it was our circumstances, we'd want to throw our hands up. I apologize to folks who don't know all that's going on. I know this is awkward. If it was based on our circumstances, we would want to throw our hands up. We'd want to give up. Say, Lord, this is not fair. Why? Why'd you do this? Why'd you let this happen? We couldn't make sense of it. The gladness of following Jesus rests in the reality of his accomplishments on our behalf and the assurance of the outcome of that work, our complete redemption and the making of all things new. We have been called to a costly discipleship with an incredible outcome. The cost, although a true experience, will be transformed into that beautiful reality. Our hope is not in how great this life is or isn't, but rests in Christ who is our life and who will deliver us. And so look now with me, if you will, at verse 18. This verse is setting for us the the circumstances, the setting of which these events occur with these two men who come up and seek to follow Jesus or, or profess that they want to follow Jesus. You'll remember that Matthew has recorded the Sermon on the Mount and these, the healing ministry of Jesus, uh, not just with the three specific examples that he gave, but the healing of many that evening in Capernaum. And so as a result of this healing ministry, and we, we're going to see this throughout the life of Jesus as we continue through Matthew, the crowds come. The crowds come because they are, they're excited I mean, this guy's doing miracles. He's healing people. The blind are receiving sight. The dead are coming back to life. Lepers are instantly healed and on and on and on. So crowds are gathering. And Matthew doesn't give the explanation. He just says when Jesus saw the crowds, he said to the disciples, we're going to go across. He's speaking of the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but he's saying we're going to go across from west to east, from out of Capernaum, we're going to go to the other side. And again, Matthew doesn't tell us the reason, but we've seen this. If you've read through the Gospels of Jesus, you know that this was something that he did often. He would pull away from the crowds to pray for rest and respite. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to surmise that following the, the teaching, uh, the preaching, the healing ministry, and all that had centered around this time in Capernaum there, that Jesus is doing just that, that he's pulling away 
for rest. And it says the disciples are going to go with him. We're going to see what happens as they cross the lake uh, next week. Uh, but the disciples, sometimes it says the disciples and it's the broader group of people who were following Jesus, true followers, uh, but, but hundreds of people. And sometimes it's the disciples, just the 12. And we're not always told which. A lot of times when it's just the 12, we're given names. And so we know that, but sometimes it's just general and we have to kind of discern. And here I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's just the 12, mainly because we're going to see them in the boat. So we, we know where this is going and if you've, if you've been to Israel, you know that in Tiberias, which is the modern-day city just, just south of Capernaum, there's a museum with a boat from 1 AD. So you can go and look at what the traditional fishing boat looks like, and maybe 20 people uh, most, it would have fit on there. So that's, that's the setting that's going to happen. He and his 12 disciples are going to go. And so that's the setting then that these other two men are going to come up and say, well, we want to go with you. You know, not everybody can go. We want to join in. We want to get on the boat. We want to go across the Sea of Galilee. And again, Matthew doesn't tell us their hearts, but we can guess that they're probably pretty fascinated by Jesus. He'd done some pretty incredible things in the last 24 hours. And so this was the desire on their part. And so in verse 19, we're introduced to the first of the two. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I will go wherever you go. Now, right away, we see this is an unlikely candidate to be a follower of Jesus. Why? Because he's a scribe. (laughs) And although there were teachers, uh, uh, lawyers, Pharisees, uh, Sadducees, scribes, we see some of these religious leaders become true followers of Jesus in his ministry. For the most part, these guys were his opponents, they, were not, they, they sought to destroy Jesus. So this guy, just right away, we see he's kind of, kind of an unlikely candidate. Um, the second thing we notice is that he addresses Jesus as teacher. And that sounds noble enough in English. But if we go and we look at all of the examples, there are five examples that Matthew records where someone uses the term teacher to call on Jesus. None of those five people follow him. So that gives us some insight maybe into how Matthew or what he's trying to record here and what he's trying to capture. Now, again, we're not told how, uh, what's in the scribe's heart. We're not told, even told what he does when Jesus responds. But the, the clear meaning of the passage and Jesus's two responses is on the weight or the costliness of discipleship. So that does give us some insight then to what was behind the, the asking and the response. We know many people were captivated by the miraculous signs of Jesus in his day, and some were enchanted by his teaching, especially the more heady types, maybe the scribes, perplexed a bit. Maybe they had some questions for him. That has continued on in history uh, over the last 2,000 years, but being infatuated with Jesus, being interested in Jesus, being captivated by even not just what he's done, but who he is, is not the same as trusting him in faith. And so the scribe says to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And again, it sounds noble and we're not told what's in his heart and we're not told what he does, but the response of Jesus seems to make it clear that he did not comprehend the cost of discipleship. In Luke's gospel, we read these words of Jesus. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
And the idea here of, is that following Jesus does come with a cost. And what Jesus is, in a sense, kind of warning these would-be followers is count the cost. Consider the cost before you follow me. Consider what it's going to involve before you say, I'll follow you wherever you go, as the scribe was doing. Don't commit flippantly. The modern-day quip might be, look before you leap, right? Count the cost. Count the cost before building the tower. And that's the same sentiment that we find here in verse 20. When Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. We know Jesus likes to take the world around him and use it instructionally. We've seen him do this already in the Sermon on the Mount. There, when he was speaking on anxiety, he said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And while that instructs us about anxiety, not being worried about how we're going to make it, that, that the father is going to protect us, it almost seems to contradict what Jesus is saying here. There he said, don't worry about your earthly needs. And now here he's telling the scribe, hey, the son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head, doesn't even have a home. Not complete contradiction, but it, it kind of sounds like, wait, are you saying the two different things here? Well, as we're going to see, the point is not that we should all go home today and put our houses on the market. Jesus is not anti-possessions. He's not speaking against any kind of wealth or ownership. Jesus had wealthy disciples. Joseph of Arimathea emerges at the end of his ministry, uh, was a wealthy man and provided that tomb in which Jesus was laid. But rather, it is what we hold on to for hope, where we find our security. I've said it again and again, Jesus is going after the heart. And that's exactly what he's doing here. In our hearts, what are we trusting in? Is our faith and our delight in our possessions? Oh, oh, (laughs) well, sometimes house, car, investment portfolio, lifestyle, bank account. What about our marriage, how our kids behave, our reputation? Good things, right? Not bad things. Where is our confidence? Where's our identity? Because if it gets mixed up in any of those things, it's not in Christ alone. This is what Jesus is getting after. Where is your confidence? Where is your hope? He's making this point about himself, but it implies to his followers here that the kingdom of God is not about this life. It's not about comfort. It's not about ease in this life. If we were to chart the wealth of the world today, every person in this room would be in the top 15%, maybe the top 5%. Go home and, and look it up. I did this week just to be sure I wasn't off base, but... Seriously, folks, we're, we're, and, and if you think of how kings lived 100 years ago, we all live better than they did. So, so we have to be very discerning here. This is not about the wealth part. It's about our hearts. So don't, don't fall into the trap of envy because that's a part of it. There may be believers who have nice houses, 
and you, you struggle to make your mortgage every month or can't even get a mortgage to get a house. There may be some believers who share regularly of their vacations and their travels and their various endeavors, and the best you've had is a staycation 10 years ago. Some may be able to retire early, and you're looking at things thinking you're going to work till you're probably mid-80s. But following Christ is not about comfort and ease in this life. Now, all those things that I mentioned are just examples of what we could call first world problems, right? I mean, if we start thinking about the globe, if we think even of our prayer this morning for the persecuted church, we understand that our suffering is, I mean, it pales in comparison. There, there are believers around the world who this very day have possibly run for their lives. Nigeria is not being talked about in the news very much, very little, actually. Uh, governments are ignoring it, including our own. There are petitions that you can sign to try and get our government to take and become aware and speak into the problem in Nigeria of how Christians are being slaughtered there by the hundreds and now thousands over the past eight to ten years. We could go and look in India, especially northern India, Pakistan, that region, Burkina Faso recently, Iran, China, so many other places. The actual persecution here that we're speaking of is persecution for following Christ, not just suffering in general. So we need to be careful what we call persecution and what we call suffering. And yet at the same time, none of us in this room ask to be born in this time. I was going to say this century, but last century, right? I mean, I think probably all of us were born last century or a few of us maybe this century. None of us asked to be born in this time. None of us asked to be born in this location. We didn't make that choice. This is where God has sovereignly placed us. And so I do not want to discount, even though we're quite aware of the sufferings of others and need to be aware of them, we need to be mindful of them, I don't want to discount the real grief and the true trials and the genuine suffering that many in this room are know, know, know right now, are going through right now. And yet we, we need to be mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer persecution, praying for them, gathering this Friday to, to, to support them in, in, uh, in that way. But it doesn't mean that we can't lament our burdens. When we experience suffering, we can grieve these things too. We live in a fallen world. And yet we don't grieve, though, as those who have no hope. For we know that these momentary afflictions will fade in the light of the tremendous glory that awaits us. We do have hope. That's what sets us apart as believers. The next gentleman comes up to him in verse 21. Jesus is probably close to getting in the boat. And this, this is now described not as a scribe, but a, a, another of the disciples, that larger group, says, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Now, what was he asking for and, and uh, what, what was Jesus responding to? We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, this, this, this gentleman, instead of coming up and saying, teacher, addresses Jesus as Lord which at least in Matthew's gospel is the more respectful. Uh, We see this with the ones that he healed. They addressed him, the centurion and so forth, addressed him as Lord, Uh, more than just a a common, uh, what we would use today as sir. And 
And, and, and he seems genuine. I, I want to follow you wherever you go. I'm going to go, but that's implied. He doesn't say that, but he says, I need a pass, you know, a weekend pass, so to speak. I need a, a temporary pass to go and to bury my father. And most believe this was not an immediate need. If his father had died, he would be gone already. That was the culture. That was what his responsibility would have been. Um, most believe that this, what he is asking for is instead release from any sense of commitment until his father died. His father's aged. He's thinking about that. He you know, wants to be close by. And whatever the reason is, we're not, we're not given all of that. But Jesus' response then sounds almost abrupt to us. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What does he mean? He isn't, again, just like I said, he's not calling us to go home and put our houses on the market. He's not prohibiting his followers from attending a family funeral or a funeral of a friend or a funeral of a loved one. What he is addressing is the heart. This man's unwillingness to commit to truly follow Jesus, come what may. He's looking for any excuse. He thinks this is a good one, by the way. This is a really good one, right? Uh, th- this one, who, who's going to say no to this? I mean, honor your father and mother, right? Jesus won't say no to this. And Jesus is saying, you know, he knows his heart. He, you're missing the mark here. Following Jesus trumps temporal matters. Your purpose in life as a disciple is first and foremost to follow Christ. Why? Because he's king. He's sovereign. We'll see this later in, in, in Matthew's gospel when we get to chapter 19, but to peek ahead, Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So this is not about measurements accumulations, let's put our spreadsheets and our charts, charts, charts away in terms of trying to quantify what we've done or what someone else has done, comparing, envying, and so forth. Instead, let's see if we can make sense of what does this look like for us as believers. How do we make sense out of all that Jesus has said so far? Because like I said in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about your physical needs. And then here he seems to say, don't count on it. Son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Throughout his teaching and ministry, Jesus affirms the law, and yet here he seems almost to contradict the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Kind of coldly, let the dead bury their own dead. Salvation, we know, is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and yet in these verses, it sounds like there's something we've got to do, cost that, that somehow we've got to earn. So what is the answer? Well, the answer is found in what I've skipped over in verse 20 intentionally because this is where I want us to end. I want us to end seeing our Savior exalted because in 20, in verse 20, Jesus uses his favored title, the one he used the most to describe himself, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. When we read it, we might think, please excuse me, that's all I can do. When we read it, we might think, Son of Man, well, this, this speaks of Jesus' humanity. Son of God, that's his divinity. Son of Man, this is his humanity, and that's what it tends to, to focus on. Jesus was born as a man. He came born as a man, fully God, fully man, 
It draws our attention to that, but it actually emphasizes his deity more than his humanity. And the reason for this is where it is found in prophecy. In the book of Daniel, he foresaw as a prophet the Messiah way down in time. And he writes about it in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is this scene that Daniel describes? Well, the scene is following Jesus' ascension. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and he returns to the Father. Work accomplished. He has handed the kingdom. That's the picture here. This is describing his divinity, the fact that he is the second person of the Trinity. We know that Jesus, we we saw this recently, uh, I say recently, uh, when we were going through Advent, that uh, Jesus committed in eternity past to carry out this mission, to come and be born as a man. And in that humility, he rightly set aside what was rightfully his, what Philippians 2 describes as not counting his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but laying it aside, he became a servant to die. That's what Jesus committed to, eternity past, covenant of grace. In that humility, he laid down what was rightfully his, and on earth he lived as a man, a man that Isaiah would describe of as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, rejected by many. And then at the end of his ministry, Jesus suffered and died, and it says again, Isaiah, the father laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Yet the humiliation of Jesus was only the beginning of the story, wasn't it? The story wasn't over, thankfully, because Jesus was raised from the dead. And this forward-looking portrayal that Daniel describes here is when the Son of Man would be exalted following his resurrection and his ascension and that he would be given this dominion and glory and kingdom of all peoples, nations, and languages. And this everlasting dominion would not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Because the Son of Man came in humility, completing all the work necessary and declaring on the cross, it is finished. We can follow him, come what may. This is where our hope is. Because of what he has done, we can be glad followers and disciples. Not because this life is promised to be easy or free from any pain or discomfort, but because of what he has accomplished and is holding in heaven for us. Because he has been exalted, because he has been ascribed this dominion through his kingdom, we can follow him in confidence and assurance of the hope that we have. As as disciples of Jesus, we don't need to sit and wring our hands and hope that Jesus wins. He has won. It has been accomplished. When he said it is finished and the curtain was torn in two, it was done. He has won and the cross and the resurrection are proof of his victory. Therefore, we can wholeheartedly follow him 
without worry of temporal matters like homes or jobs or funeral arrangements. Most of us will still have to deal with these things, but this isn't what defines us. This isn't where we find our identity. This is not where we place our security or not where we seek any lasting pleasure. Why? Because all this stuff's passing away. It's all rotting. We've been in our home not even five years and it's fallen apart. (laughs) It happens to all of us. Instead, our hope, our attention, our affections are to be rooted in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who has come completing the work and has promised to carry us safely home. The cost to follow him is still great. Remember when people said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and what we heard was all your problems will go away? Mm. The cost is great. We must hold loosely to what unbelievers cling so tightly to and seek and hold so dear. The treasures that glimmer on our screens in front of us constantly We need to recognize them for what they are, fool's gold, right? They're worthless. That's not why we're here. That's not why we're alive, to get more stuff. Instead, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We've been called to run the race with our eyes fixed on him. We've been called to pay the cost in a sense, to endure the cost with our eyes fixed on Jesus because he has paid the cost. That's a better way to say it. He has paid it. Even the cost that we endure now as disciples, the suffering that we go through, all of this is done in faith in Christ alone. Moment by moment, every day of our lives. Some days are better than others, yet the call to consider the cost remains. So this call is one to persevere, not give up when the suffering comes. I used to hear older people in the faith talk about wanting to finish well. And I was like, you're like a saint. What do you mean finish well? I mean, how, what, what could go wrong? And then I got a few more miles under my belt and I realized what they were talking about and realized how this, the challenge of holding fast doesn't go away. So persevere, don't give up, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. The call is one to obey, to war against sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil, that's, that's where the battle is fought. Hate sin, love the law of God. And then the, 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 the final thing, the call is one to trust, to not lean on our own understanding or anything we've done, our accomplishments, our reputation, our knowledge, even our title of, I'm a Christian, but instead to trust in Jesus, resting by faith in his finished work on our behalf. And folks, not just the fact that he's forgiven your sins, but the fact that he has promised to carry you safely home, to finish, to redeem, to make all things new. All this stuff that you can't make sense of that you're going through right now, Jesus has promised to make all things new. And so cling to him. Hold fast to him, fix your eyes upon him and endure, run the race. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you do for us what only you can do? Because we hear these words and, and we, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, but we're gonna get distracted the moment we walk out of here. 
We're going to get distracted this afternoon. We're going to think of other things. Other things are going to weigh us down, if not even right now. Real, true things, heavy things. Father, would you lift us out of our grief? Would you heal our hearts? Would you give us strength in the midst of suffering to endure? Would you give us joy and gladness, even though we can't make sense of that in the midst of hard times? Would you give us that peace that is beyond our understanding so that we might say, even though the the fig tree doesn't bear fruit, yet I will praise the Lord. Lord, we want that. Would you do that work in our hearts? Would you make us wholehearted disciples willing to follow you wherever you go truly and to count the cost of doing so? Make our hearts glad in this. Do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.